as our other campuses and venues join us for our time in the Word, let's all bow together and pray. Father, we are grateful for this day and for a chance to worship you, to hopefully focus our minds and humble our hearts before your presence in our midst. I pray, God, that as we turn to your word now, your truth, and even the very words of Jesus, that you might uh, help us to understand them rightly, and Lord, uh, and then for us, we'll, Lord, we will live out what we know to be true uh, that you've said to us. So God, that's our prayer. We pray that you would speak to us now in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. So some of you might disagree with this right off the bat, but I, I hope you don't because it's kind of a judgment call. But I get this sense sometimes that Christians have a hard time unifying. Would you all tend to agree with that? I, I, I mean, you we're going to see in a second here how important unity is to the heart of God, but let's start by gauging where we're at right now. I think that the onlooking world sometimes looks at us, and I think many of us, when we're honest, look at ourselves, and as Christians worldwide, uh, we, have a tr we have a lot of trouble attaining unity. Uh, this year, we celebrate the 500th year anniversary of the famous Protestant Reformation. It was 500 years ago this year that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And as many of us know, the Reformation was a time in the history of the church where a lot of theological abuses were righted, and it got a lot of people on track with what we might call Orthodox or Biblical Christianity. However, one of the downsides of the Reformation is that it also splintered Christ's church into, now wait for this, 45,000 different denominational groups today. Let that sink in a minute. You can verify it on Google if you want to. There's 45,000 different denominational groups, depending on how you define a denomination, that have sprung up within Christianity since the Reformation 500 years ago. As one scholar says, it turned the once universal church into an awful lot of churches. And it really is one of the downsides of the Reformation. And in one sense, it's not a bad thing because the Reformation freed people up to read the Bible on their own. It freed people up to interpret the Bible on their own. And right around the time of the Reformation, the printing press was invented. So isn't that kind of ironic in God's design? Because now we are printing Bibles all over the place. But it also, as the downside of that, is that a lot of people started to argue and bicker back and forth within Christianity over what I'm going to argue today are non-essential issues. And Christians, even before the Reformation, but since then, have had a hard time unifying. We seem to bicker back and forth a lot within the church. As somebody once said, the Christian army is the only army that shoots its own wounded. And I think that there's some truth in that. Honestly, the best example I can give you, and some of you will relate to this, is that uh, sometimes in, in our extended families, when we try to get everybody together, say for a family vacation or a Thanksgiving dinner, it starts off really good, but then it starts to get ugly, right? Like you bring up Trump or something like that, and then it just starts to go downhill real fast. And before you know it, that wonderful extended family vacation or Thanksgiving dinner gets very tense, if not downright contentious. You see, I think that happens a lot in the church. I think there are times where we start off really well, but before you know it, Satan has a field day. 
and starts to, to breed contention and, 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 and disruption within the church. And before you know it, even Christians are at each other's throats. And here's what's incredibly sad about this is that if you were to ask me, say privately over a cup of coffee, that if I had to rate on a scale of one to 10 how important unity is to the heart of God, do you know what I would give it? A solid 10 every day of the week. And I could prove that biblically and theologically. That when you read the Bible, and I'm gonna show this to you in black and white today, God puts unity right up there with all the other things that he cares deeply about. He puts it right up there with faith, hope, love, perseverance, righteousness. Think of all the things that you know that God is into. He puts unity right on par with those things. And for very good reason. In fact, let's just jump to our main point right now. This is the primary thing that you and I need to latch on to today as we start our new year, and it's this, that our unity, and I mean our as followers of Jesus, as Christians, is core to God's plan for this world. Some of you didn't know that. Some of you have not seen it this way or given it enough weight up to this point in your Christian experience, but I'm gonna ask you to today, our unity is core to God's plan for this world. Now, if, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. We're gonna pretty much park in front of these words of Jesus here today. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. We're going to uh, put the passage up here on the monitor. It's also in your bulletin, if you care to turn there, on the outline that was provided for you. Now, as you're turning there by way of context, let me just let you know that John 17, the entire chapter, is one long prayer of Jesus's. We all know prayer is a very intimate activity where you're talking to God, you're laying things out before God, you're asking God of certain things. And this is what Jesus is doing here in John 17. In fact, it's the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus's. It has caused theologians over the years to call this prayer Jesus's high priestly prayer because it's very long, it's very formal, and it, was, and it was prayed literally about a week before he died. So if ever a prayer of Jesus's was important, this one is. And, and again, it's a powerful prayer. And so with this backdrop, look with me at what Jesus prays in verses 20 to 23 of this prayer. Up to this point, he's been praying mainly for his 12 disciples. Now he switches gears and look what he does. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the 12 disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. 
Now, there's a lot going on in this prayer of Jesus's here. It's a much more theologically rich and intricate prayer than most people would ever realize at first glance, and we're going to get into some of that, but just so that we don't miss the main point of what Jesus is getting at here, I want you to notice two very simple but profound things about Jesus's prayer here. First, obviously, hopefully you picked up that Jesus is praying for all believers, That's really important that you see that for where we're going here in just a second. Jesus is praying not just for the 12 disciples, not just for his day and age, but he's praying for all believers at all times in this prayer, or at least at this point in his prayer. And we know that because he says in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the 12 disciples, but for those who also believe in me through their word. That phrase, for those also who believe in me, literally means for those who are to believe in me. It's what Greek grammarians call a present participle with a future sense, meaning Jesus is looking into the future and he's saying, based on the word of the disciples, based on the message getting out, there's going to be future generations who believe and they're going to continue to believe in their current age. That's what Jesus is envisioning here. So not to put too fine a point on it, but he is praying here 2,000 years ago for you. He's praying here 2,000 years ago for me. The God of the universe who took on human form and came to this earth, only one time do we have an example where he prayed pointedly for all the future generations, for you and for me, and this is it. So if I was you, and I am in a sense you, I'd be really interested, I'd be super dialed in as to what he is praying, right? That's right. So what's the second thing we need to notice here? It's this, and that is that Jesus prays. I mean the primary, if not the only thing he asks for, he prays that we may be one. Seven times that little phrase that they may be one is repeated here in John 17 four of which occur in these verses 20 to 23. And they all have to do with this idea of unity. Let me ask you a question. If you tell your rebellious kid something seven times in a row, what are you trying to do? (laughs) You're trying to get it through to his or her thick head that this is what I need you to see. This is what I need you to understand. And this is what God is doing with us here. He's trying to say, you don't get it. You don't seem to hear it on the first try. So let me say it seven times in one prayer. I hope that all future generations of followers of Jesus may be one. And let's focus on that little word right now, one. Because I got to tell you, what Jesus does with this word here is nothing less than striking and paradigm altering. In verses 21 and 23, look at what he does with this word one. It's so easy to miss unless you park in front of it. He says that they may all be one. Now here it is. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Some of you are going, what? (laughs) That's hard to follow, isn't it? I mean, what's Jesus doing here? What, what, I and you, you and me, they and them. I mean, what, what's all that about? 
It's really not complicated once you start to think about it. What Jesus is saying here, and I don't miss this, gang, is that our unity is to be patterned after and even found in the very trinity of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all separate persons, you guys know your theology, with separate roles and functions, but all the one God. So you have three persons in one God, unified in all that they do, and Jesus is saying here that our unity needs to look like and even emanate from that. He's saying that our unity is patterned after the Trinity, And boy, that's a powerful thing when you start to think about the implications of that. That just like the Trinity of God has full acceptance and love, and just like the Trinity of God has full knowledge and authenticity, it's all laid out before each other, and just like they have full support of different roles, and yet they're completely like-minded in the direction that they're going in, we're to pattern our Christian community and even our Christian communities with other brothers and sisters who don't happen to attend our church but are part of other churches or maybe even aren't going to any church but believe in Jesus, we're to pattern our unity with them after the Trinity. I'm telling you guys, you can't get any more clear or hard-hitting than this when it comes to what Jesus is after in unity. It's an incredible challenge. And don't forget, I'm going to remind you of this right now before we move on, this is a prayer of Jesus's. This is what he wants to come true. It's his primary heart and desire for his people. You know, I was thinking in my office this week, I was thinking, you know, if some of you were back then with Jesus, you know, and you were one of the 12 disciples and you were hearing him pray this prayer, I I know how some of you think. You would be thinking, well, you know, of all the things you could ask for, Jesus, I'm not sure you should have asked for that. He would have called you Satan and told you to get behind him, mind you, if you would have said that to him. But, but, But I think some of us, Really, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves and look at the things that we prioritize in our lives, and this is the point, would probably not have chosen to pray for unity if we were Jesus. That we would want Jesus to pray like this. I pray, Father, that you would keep the church completely doctrinally pure and agreeing in all the minutia of theology. That's what some of you would pray, honestly. And again, you don't laugh at that because it's so stinking true about your lives. And the reason that I know you would pray that is because that's how you talk to the vast majority of Christians around you. Your main goal is try to try to get them to see your specific theological bent that you believe you are completely right in and that you don't give a lot of room that maybe you're wrong in. And, and so the way that you want to foster unity is to try to get everybody on your side. Anybody know a Christian like that? I've been like that in the past. So again, I'm I'm not picking on you guys. Well, I I am. But anyways, I I have been like that too. And I'm telling you, we think that fosters unity because we get four or five people to join us in that. It doesn't. It doesn't foster unity at all. And it wasn't Jesus' primary prayer that we agree on everything theologically. Or maybe you do it with politics, or maybe you do it with morality, or maybe you do it with lifestyle, or maybe you do it with Christian worldview. I I mean, we always try to get people to unify with us by getting them to agree with us. And isn't it interesting that Jesus' prayer here is not that we would all agree on everything because he knew how diverse the church would be. No, his prayer was despite the disagreements, despite the distinctives, despite the differences, he says, I pray 
that you would give them unity. Why? Because it's right up there with his top desire for his people. John Ortberg wrote a book a few years ago. I, I bought it for the title alone. The title of the book was, was called Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. That's a great title of a book. And, and it's actually a great book as well. And in this book, look at what Ortberg says about unity. He says, to allow or contribute to disunity is to be fundamentally at odds with, God, with the purpose of God in human history. He says it may be common in our world, but it is not normal in God's eyes. So, so again, some of you have accepted disunity so much in the church that honestly you just think it's normal. Like you think, well, you know, hey, I mean, the world struggles with it and so will we. God says, no, it's not normal at all. It's abnormal to be disunified. It's normal. It's my highest prayer to be unified. Now, once we understand this, once we understand how incredibly important unity is to the heart of Jesus, the obvious $10 question becomes how? I mean, how are we to attain this, right? I mean, it's one thing to talk about unity. Anybody can talk a big game, as I have been for the last 14 minutes, but how do you actually attain what we're talking about? especially given the fact that we are all different and we have distinctives and personal preferences and likes and dislikes and all the other things. How do we get unity? Believe it or not, contained in these six verses of Jesus's prayer is the key. And it's a threefold key, three kinds of glue, if you will, that Jesus says will hold us all together. I call these three rallying points for unity that Jesus gives us. You ready for the first one? It's this, and that is that we find unity in a common faith in Jesus Christ. We find unity in a shared or common faith that we all have in Christ. So look again at verse 23 of Jesus' prayer here in John 17, and you'll see what I mean. He, he says, as he starts this little prayer off here, he says, I in them, and then you, Father, in me, that they may be perfected in unity. He says, I in them. So as one author says, indwelling, the indwelling of Christ in us is the key to unity, right? And so how does that work? Well, when you accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, when you came to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says, and most of you know this, that God chose to inhabit himself in you. He deposited the Holy Spirit in you. Jesus says he and the Father made their home in you. We call it the indwelling of God in us. And it doesn't make us God. It just means that God now empowers us and has his home in us through our faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. I in them, you in me. And notice that that's the key to unity. So here's how this works. I'll pick on Richard. Richard here is in the front row, and I know because Richard has confessed that he is a believer in Jesus Christ, so what I'm supposed to do is this. Jesus lives in my friend Richard. Richard knows that Jesus lives in me, and no matter what other differences Richard and I might have, and we probably have them, we have unity because of our common or shared faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the way it's supposed to work. And what's so cool about this, once you get this, what is so amazing about this, once you get this, is that if you have a shared faith in Jesus Christ, then no matter what other differences you might have with them, you can have unity with them. Because the power is in a shared faith. 
So again, think about all the differences among Christians. This means that it doesn't matter whether they are a charismatic or a five-point Calvinist or whether they are a Missouri Synod Lutheran or a Methodist or whether they're a dancing in the aisle Baptist or a legalistic Baptist or a loose Baptist because Baptists come in all flavors. (laughs) I'm an ordained Baptist minister. I can say that. By the way, some of you didn't even know that. You're going, you're an ordained Baptist minister. How would we let you in? Well, it's all about unity. (laughs) Because the point is, is that if you and I have a common faith in Jesus Christ, you are mine and I am yours. Amen? It's true. Now, I'll give one caveat, just one caveat to this, because some of you are going to email me if I don't. And you're right to email me if I don't say this. When I say a common faith, it is a faith alone in Christ alone. That is important because there are some people that are out there saying, well, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus, but they're really trying to live on their good works. Yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus, but, but it's more their morality that is going to get them to heaven. And the rest of the Bible says, oh my gosh, if you do that one, you are messed up spiritually. That's in the margins. You are really messed up. The reality is, is that the Bible is clear that our faith needs to have one object, and it's Jesus Christ and him alone, because he's the only one who gave the sacrifice for our sins, the only one who can get us into heaven. So when I say a common faith, that's what I mean by that. But once we have that, that is where our unity is found with other believers. It's a shared faith, and we must never forget that. Now, as you're chewing on that, notice with me a second rallying point for our unity with each other, and that is that we find unity in a common love for each other. And I know how some of you think. Right now, I mean, the second I put this up there, you're thinking, yeah, 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 I know that. What's number three? Man, park in front of this one, will you, for just a second, because I'm going to show you in about 30 seconds how much grit and teeth this one has in giving us unity. But first, let me show you where Jesus says it in plain English to us on how this is the core glue or a rallying point for our unity. Look at verse 26 of his prayer. He says, and I have made your name known to them, and they will make it known to others, so that the love which you have loved me may be in them as I am in them. So again, Jesus is being very clear here. He's saying that the love of God the Father exists in us, and then it becomes expressed to each other in Trinitarian-like community, and our shared love becomes a seedbed for unity as a church. That's what Jesus is saying here. And again, I know some of you go, yeah, 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 I know we're supposed to love. Here's what you need to understand, and that is that this particular rallying point for unity has a power that really the other two that we're looking at here, the other two rallying points for unity, don't have. And you're saying, what is that? And that is, it is, it is this rallying point for unity that has the power to keep us unified. Now watch this, in the midst of massive disagreements with each other, repeated hurts, 
negative character traits that all of you have and that I have as well, and even downright mismatches when it comes to any affinity that we might not have with each other, this rallying point for unity can blow every one of those out of the water and blow through them. How do we know that? 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. Man, this is my theme verse in marriage. How about you? I mean, when Kim and I are at each other's throats, when we have to agree to disagree, when we can't seem to find unity, you know what we do? We say it this way. When we don't feel like keeping the vows, the vows keep us. And the vows that we made to each other were to love each other through thick and thin, through everything that we might go through, because why? Love covers over a multitude of sins. And it works the same in the church, gang. That when some of you get hurt by another, in fact, let's just pause right there. Look, here's the reason that most Christians can't stay unified. And it's not because we disagree on what song we sang or we disagree on what the pastor said or something silly like that. No, the vast majority of disunity in the church happens because somebody messed with my business. They hurt me. They said something to me. They wrote me an email that I didn't like. I mean, think about all the things that goes on in the church today. It's almost always the result of personal hurt. And here's what really exasperates it is that some of you are sophisticated enough to know that when somebody hurts you, what do you do? You go to them and you say, hey, you hurt me. You know, you said that to me. The only problem is, is that other Christian looks at you like you're from Mars and says, bug off, then that didn't go very well, right? Because now all of a sudden, not only do they hurt you, but they're unwilling to even be reasonable with you. What are you to do with that? The average Christian says, well, I hope I never see them until heaven. I mean, I I hope I never have to interact with them. It's a large church. I ain't going to that service. I'm going to go to that service, you know, and and that's that's how we do it. When the reality is, and I know some of you aren't going to like this, you know what the Bible says you're to do with that? (laughs) Ready for this one? Let it go. That's what God says to you. Honestly, I I know you, yeah, some of you are clapping at that. (laughs) Let it go. Some of you aren't clapping. Let it go. I mean, it is hard. And some of you go, well, I've tried to let it go, Jamie, and I can't seem to let it go. What do I do? See, here's what I, I again, you're not going to like that. tell you what to do with it because it's going to work too. Here's what you haven't done. You haven't really taken it to God yet. See, the problem is some of us know we need to let it go. We know we can't let it go on our own, and we're terrified to actually ask God to empower us to do it. We're terrified to actually tell him, God, I can't do it on my own. I can only do it if your indwelling Holy Spirit empowers me to do it. We've not actually gone to God and said, God, I lay myself out before you. I hate that person. I don't ever want to see that person again. And the only way I'm going to love them is if you love them through me. We're terrified to ask God of that because if it doesn't work, then we're really messed up, right? But the reality is, is that you won't know until you try. And there have been people, and again, I can't break confidence, but there have been people in my life over the last 35 years of being a Christian that I absolutely didn't want to see again till heaven. And yet there were people that were very close in my life, you know, through extended family and other things. And and, and I finally, a few years ago, literally since I've been here, I took it to God. And I said, God, I I just can't love this person on my own. There's lots of people I can't, I can't. And I'm amazed at what God has done to bring a change to my heart and a healing to my life that has allowed me 
to love the unlovable, to let go of things that I never thought I could let go of. I'm not saying it came quickly. It takes time, but you won't know until you lay it out before God. Why? Because it's brilliant on God's part. A shared love is the seedbed for unity. If we can learn to love one another and truly let go and allow the majors to be the majors, the minors to be the minors, the mountains to be the mountains, the molehills to be the molehills, if we can do that, then God says you're well on your way to unity. It's a common love for each other, and it's powerful. God knows what he's talking about. So, quick review before we move on to number three. What binds us together? A shared faith or a common faith in Jesus Christ, a common love for each other, and then lastly, and a bit more quickly, because we've got to wrap this thing up, notice with me that a third area that we find unity in is in a common mission for the church, a common mission for the church. And again, Jesus couldn't be more clear on this. Look once again at verses 21 and 23. I told you this was a rich prayer. He says that they may all be one, we've seen that, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that's the Trinity, we've seen that, that they may also be in us, we join in Trinitarian unity. Now watch this, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Then verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So twice there, we see a missional component to this idea of unity. That what Jesus is saying here is that you and I are after a common goal in why we unify. We're going to explore this more in just a minute here. But it's that common goal to see others come to Jesus that is the one of the, the, the rallying points or core of our unity. So let me ask you a question. Anybody here know what the mission of the church is? It, it's really not complicated. We say it, lots of churches say it different ways, but we're really getting after the same thing when you look closely at it. We say it using three words in our church here, win, build, and send. That's our mission. And I can prove that biblically, that we are to win other people to faith in Christ. Paul the Apostle says, I become all things to all people in order to win as many as possible. So there's an evangelistic component to our mission. Then we're to build up the saints. We do a lot of that around here. We're like a saint factory here at our church. We spend a lot of dough and a lot of time and a lot of resources pouring into you to help you become more like Jesus, to help you grow and mature and be more loving and be more faith-filled. So we build each other up. And then thirdly, we send each other back out into this crazy culture, now more strengthened to be winners and builders ourselves. That's the mission of the church. It's not complicated. Daryl loves to say it this way, our pastor emeritus. He says, we're not a country club. We're not even a workout club. We're a hospital where wounded and hurt people come and we fix them up and then we send them back out until they get wounded and hurt again and then they come back. I mean, that's a lot of the picture of, of what a church is. And here's the point. If and as we rally around this simple and clear mission of Jesus's and even do so with other churches that might say it other ways but are really after the same thing, we have unity. And the key is to keep our eye on that ball. Don't go out in the community and say, you ought to come to my church because we do it better than yours. I, I, I mean, that's an insult to the Spirit of God. Do we all understand that? 
because the Spirit of God is working in any church that lifts up the name of Jesus, whether they do it like us or not. I'm taking a little bit of a risk with this illustration because I, I didn't ask him if I could share this, but uh, he reports to me and we pay him, so I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, how many of you know who Troy Peterson is? Raise your hand if you know who Troy is. Most of us do. Even at the campuses and venues, you guys know who Troy is. Troy is the head of our, our worship arts ministry here at our church. He's got a huge job. He commands about 300 volunteers, a staff of nine or 10. We have 11 services every weekend. Our Winter Wonder program, we're on three different campuses. And Troy has just got, I mean, he's got a job. And plus, he's got to work with artists all the time. I would not want to do his job. And so I just, because they're picky people. And unlike us theologians who are easygoing. And so... Troy has a very difficult job in his life. When we found Troy seven years ago, we knew we had struck gold. I mean, the church he was at, he had just done an amazing job. It was, a, it was a church in Pennsylvania. The only drawback to Troy is that he roots for the Pittsburgh Steelers, which is like, oh, my gosh, how could you do that? But anyways, he, other than that, Troy is an amazing individual. Here's what most people don't know about Troy. Before Troy came to Scottsdale Bible Church, he had never served outside of a Pentecostal church. Yeah, and some people go, What's Pentecostal mean? Well, I want to be careful how I say this, but let me just say it this way. Very different than Scottsdale Bible Church. You all are look so good and you're behaved and you're kind of sedate, even though you raise your hand in worship, you do it very, you know, in a very classy way and all that. And, 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 and you know, some of you don't raise your hands in worship. You're going to not like heaven because you're going to be doing that in heaven. And, and so, you know, we're, we're just, we're Scottsdale Bible Church. A Pentecostal church is much more expressive in their worship. A Pentecostal church believes in the full use of the, the spiritual gifts, and, and, and so they speak in tongues, and there's interpretations of tongues, and there's healings, and there's miracles. Some of you might not know that's what Pentecostalism is. And before Troy came here, he had never served outside of a Pentecostal church. And I can remember when our, we used a Christian search firm to find Troy, and when, when uh, the guy first gave me Troy's resume, I almost just circular filed it. I almost just threw it away. I was like, there's just no way a guy from that kind of church is going to fit here at Scottsdale Bible Church. But, but I also loved the man when I talked to him. I, I saw some of his worship you know, CDs that he, he put out, and I thought he's got a really great voice, and so we brought him in. And I put him through the ringer. I mean, some of you know who Wayne Grudem is, who wrote the Systematic Theology. I, I made Troy spend two hours of theological grilling from Wayne Grudem, and he passed, barely, but he did get through. <laughs> And I put Troy in front of a lot of other people, the poor guy, you know, because I just wanted to make sure that this would be a good fit. And, and you know what I found? I found that Troy, now isn't this endearing, finds his unity with you and I in a shared faith in Jesus Christ, in a tender love for each other, and in a common mission, whether you're Pentecostal or Baptist or Episcopalian or Bible church or whatever, a common mission, and he keeps his eye on that ball. And so might Troy and I disagree on certain things uh, in minutia of theology? I, I think we might. We really don't get into those things as much because he would find out I'm right and he's wrong. But anyways, I, I, I don't get into those things. No, the reality is, is that we find our unity elsewhere. And here's the point, guys. I could tell you that story a few times over in the staff that we have. We've really grown and matured as a staff, haven't we, Margie? 
I, I mean, as we've grown as a staff, we have I, I call us a bunch of spiritual mutts on staff here because we all come from very different Christian backgrounds. And it doesn't mean that we don't have strong theological persuasions. I do, and I preach those things. There's a, there's a teaching platform here at our church that I feel very strongly about that protects the sovereignty and providence of God, the eternal security of believers, things that are very meaningful to us. So I'm not saying we fudge on anything. It's just that we find our unity in things that are even more broad than some of our belief distinctives. We find our unity in the things that we're talking about here today. A common faith, a common love, and a common mission. Now, in the eight minutes we have left, why is this so important? Why does God lift up unity to such a high level? You ready for this? This is gonna rock your world. And here's what God says. This is our take home point. And that is that when you, we are unified, when you and me and all the other people who claim the name of Jesus are unified, lost people come to Christ. Uh, real quickly, notice how Jesus said this. We've looked at these two verses, so I'm not even gonna necessarily read them again, but we saw earlier that when we are one, the world believes. And that when we live in Trinitarian community, the world knows about Jesus. Just think about that for a second here. If I polled most of you here today, and at our campuses and venues, most of you, and said, what is it that's going to win a lost world to Jesus Christ? I'm telling you, 98% of you before today would not have said unity. And I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying it's because we just don't talk about it this much and we don't really realize what Jesus' prayer was about. The reality is if you look at most churches, most Christian people today, we say here's how we're going to win lost people. We're going to print more copies of the four spiritual laws. We're going to do more door-to-door evangelism. We're going to develop more seeker strategies. We're going to get Jamie preaching a little bit shorter so that you know it won't bore the lost people. We're going to we're going to get a little bit better music. We're going to develop better evangelism strategies. We're going to hire evangelism pastor. We're going to do more crusades. We're going to bring Franklin Graham to town. See where I'm going with all this? We have developed in our 21st century world all these strategies to try to win lost people, and I'm not against any of them. I love most of them. It's just that as one author says, it's an adventure in missing the point. Because the reality is, Jesus says you can do all of that, but the reality is what's going to win lost people at the end of the day is our unity. So you can miss all of that and be a unified church and lost people are going to come to Christ. And you're going, well, wait a second, how does that work? Think about it. It really is brilliant when you think of God's plan. Our world, and it's been going on like this for thousands of years, is a very disunified world. Anybody pick up on that? I mean, my gosh, our world can disunify over everything. And you look around at our culture today, we're just one big poster child for disunity. I mean, the political realm, did you ever think it would be get this disunified? I mean, it's crazy. I was watching the news yesterday, and, and again, I mean, she said this publicly, so I'm allowed to repeat it. Madonna was one of the protesters in Washington, and, and Madonna, who I, we all know is not a poster child for morality, but Madonna twittered out in the middle of these protesters, she said, if I could, I would blow up the White House. And, and I thought to myself, wow, that seems kind of harsh if you ask me. I mean, even if you don't like the guy, that just seems kind of harsh. And that's what's going on in our political realm. Some of you feel very strongly about these things. I get it. 
But my point simply is, and this is Jesus' point, is that we live in a very disunified world. So with that backdrop, knowing that our world is never going to find unity outside of Jesus. I mean, do we all understand the reason that they're disunified is because they don't have the hope of Christ, they don't have a common mission, they don't have common goals. I mean, all the things that we have been, see where I'm going with this? All the things we've been given, they have not. So they're expected to be disunified and the way God wants it to work is that because we have been given hope, faith, love, righteousness, a common faith, a common love, a common mission, that there's no, it's a no-brainer, we're going to be unified. That's what God says. That then when the disunified world looks at us, they're going to say, whoa, my heart longs for that. I long to be loved and accepted. I long to be cared for. I long to find God. How do you guys do that? And the second they ask us that, we go, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me share with you what the foundation or who the foundation of our unity is. And his name is Jesus. And it's through that draw to unity that God, God's plan comes to fruition. Are you all seeing this? I had somebody walk out last night, and this is not a compliment to me. It's really God's word. He said to me in the parking lot, he said, I got to tell you, I've heard a lot of messages on unity. This one changed me. And I knew what he meant by that. What changed him was seeing how God wants to use unity to help this church and all churches draw lost people to himself. So here's my closing thought. We've got three minutes. We're going to end before that. My closing thought is this. Let's protect unity at all costs. See, here's what I know is going to happen this week, because I just, it's a law of averages. Many of you are going to go out of here today going, wow, that was pretty good. I'm really kind of excited about unity. And tomorrow, Satan's going to try to sabotage your life. Maybe even this afternoon, maybe even before you get out of the parking lot. I don't know. But something's going to come along that's going to threaten that unity. And I would just beg you as your pastor and as your friend, at all costs, let's protect it. Let's work on communicating with each other. Let's keep short accounts with each other. Let's let go as best we can. If you can't let go, then boy, take it to God. Lay yourself out before him as I have and as I do. And as we do that, as we do that, let's stay unified and let's see what God does. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful teaching of Jesus's. He truly is our Lord and our Savior. I can see why when people heard him teach 2,000 years ago, they knew there was something different, something divine about him. God, I pray that as we've understood rightly, I think, what Jesus is getting at here, that God, we would be the type of church, all of us together at Scottsdale Bible, that would just strive for unity, both with each other as well, God, with anybody who claims the name of Jesus. And that, Lord, you would use then that unity to turn the heads of a lost world and culture that so desperately needs the love of the Savior and that, God, you would draw them to yourself, even, Lord, through us. God, thank you for our Savior Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray and we say together as a church, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.